You're listening to The Archive, a collection of sermons and teachings from Pastor Mike and his peers from days past. Stick around for timeless truths that still speak to the issues of our days. caught, I don't know if Becky even mentioned it, but uh, she wrote that song this week, composed it, both the lyrics and the music, and so we're so delighted, uh, delighted. We are experiencing technical difficulties today. Joseph Christofferson is not here, and he is conspicuous in his absence. I'm not sure if he planned it this way to heighten our appreciation for him. I doubt that seriously, but he is uh, in... Florida undergoing some recertification for his ministry of counseling. He has to do that annually, and he's going to be back with us next week. So we miss him today, and we look forward to his return. It's good to see some of our members who have returned. I see two young men. Ben, it's good to see you here today. Ben Dumas is evidently home on spring break. Jeff Hassler, evidently you're here on spring break. I hope you young men haven't dropped out of college, and you're just here temporarily. And we are so blessed to have many students in our church who are away, and they are faithful to be here in church when they're home, either on the breaks or in the summertime. Please take your Bible and turn with me to the book of Second Chronicles. If you're unfamiliar with where Second Chronicles is, just turn to the table of contents in your Bible. You'll find it in the Old Testament, a few books to the left of center of your Bible, just to the left of the book of Psalms. If you'll keep going back, you'll finally find it. And today we're going to look at Second Chronicles, the 29th chapter. The entire chapter will serve as the text for today's message. And to get us started, I'm only going to read the first five verses of Second Chronicles chapter 29, and then we will look in some detail at various portions of this chapter together. Second Chronicles chapter 29, verse 1 through 5. Hezekiah became king when he was 25 years old, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Abijah, the daughter of Zechariah. And he did right in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father David had done. In the first year of his reign, in the first month, he opened the doors of the house of the Lord and repaired them, and he brought in the priests and the Levites and gathered them into the square on the east. Then he said to them, Listen to me, O Levites, consecrate yourselves now, and consecrate the house of the Lord, the God of your fathers, and carry the uncleanness out from the holy place. Would you pray with me? Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We pause to acknowledge your holiness. We know that you are untouched by sin, Lord, and that you desire a holy people in which to dwell and through whom you wish to accomplish your purposes here on earth. Lord, you tell us in your word if a man cleanses himself from those things which would defile him, then he will be a tool in your hand, useful to you, sanctified. Lord, that you would use us. We pray that you would use this message today to challenge us in the very core of our being, to evaluate our individual lives 
as temples of the Holy Spirit in our church's life as a temple of the Holy Spirit. Change us, O Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. When Hezekiah assumed the throne of Judah at the tender age of 25, he immediately was challenged with the question of where to focus his regime's energies. You see, the political fortunes of Judah were down. Judah was no more than a vassal state of the empire of Assyria under King Tiglath-Pileser. Not only were the political fortunes sagging in Judah, but also the domestic conditions were very poor. Homes were broken because hundreds of thousands of people had been displaced either by death or deportation, resulting in broken homes. In addition to problems domestically and politically, there were economic problems. As I had mentioned earlier, Judah had been reduced to a vassal state. It had been plundered by enemy after enemy, and its royal treasury had really been emptied through tribute money paid to those kingdoms which oversaw it and really ruled over the nation of Judah. But rather than establishing a new economic strategy or establishing a new domestic policy, setting up a welfare system, or developing a new foreign policy, what we see here in 2 Chronicles chapter 29, verse 5, Hezekiah issued a call to holiness. He understood what his forefather Solomon had written in Proverbs 14, 24, that righteousness exalts a nation and sin is a disgrace to any people. The foundation of any group's success from a spiritual perspective is that group's being in a right relationship with God. The people of Judah were uniquely gods. By this time, the northern nation of Israel, and you may recall in your study of the history of Israel, that there came a time after Solomon died when the kingdom was divided. The northern half was the nation of Israel. The southern half, of which Hezekiah was king, was Judah. A few years prior to this, in fact, seven years prior, the Assyrians had come in and destroyed the nation of Israel and had scattered them all over their empire. So, as I said a moment ago, Judah occupied a unique and favored position in God's eyes. They were the only people who were really God's people. There are some people, perhaps even in this room today, who would say that America has occupied that same position. Well, I would beg to differ with those who take that viewpoint, but I would go on to say that the Church of Jesus Christ does occupy that same position. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16, Do you not know that you, plural, y'all, are a temple of God and that God's Spirit dwells in you? The Church of Jesus Christ, wherever it shows up, wherever it expresses itself, is indeed the temple of God. Therefore, God wants His church to be holy. Now this passage of scripture, which basically reveals Hezekiah's call to holiness to Judah, has relevance to our lives as the church of Jesus Christ. One thing this passage of scripture teaches us is that contamination in the church requires a call to holiness. Look again at our passage of scripture. In verse 5, let's read it again. Listen to me, O Levites. Consecrate yourselves now and consecrate the house of the Lord, the God of your fathers, and carry the uncleanness out from the holy place. 
This word uncleanness is translated by the New International Version as defilement. And it was a legal term found in the legal literature of the Old Testament to describe a woman's uncleanness during a time of hemorrhaging or right after her having given birth. It's also used elsewhere to describe Israel's worst crimes. This is a strong word describing contamination. And the word which is translated the house of the Lord or sanctuary or holy place here in verse 5 is a word which literally is the word holy. It's used almost synonymously in the Old Testament with God. Over and over it's used in that way. It's used to describe that which is dedicated to God and is the opposite of evil. Now the question we need to ask is what form did the contamination take in the life of Judah? Well, verses 6 and 7 of this passage of Scripture answer that question. Let's read them together. For our fathers have been unfaithful and have done evil in the sight of the Lord our God and have forsaken him and turned their faces away from the dwelling place of the Lord and have turned their backs. They have also shut the doors of the porch and put out the lamps and have not burned incense or offered burnt offerings in the holy place to the God of Israel. The first way contamination had shown up in Judah's life was the unfaithfulness of their fathers. You probably are not knowledgeable enough of the Old Testament, I don't mean to insult you, but if you had been asked who was Hezekiah's father, because he was including his father in this question, his father was King Ahaz. And King Ahaz had a very poor track record. He was an idolater. In fact, he had cast idols to the Canaanite god of Baal. In addition to that, he was a murderer. He had literally sacrificed his own sons in the valley of Ben-Hinnom in fire. Not only was he an idolater and a murderer, but he had closed the doors to the temple of God. And instead of calling people to worship in the temple of God, he had set up shrines to himself on every street corner in Jerusalem. Here was a man who was charged with the responsibility of leading God's people as their king, and instead of leading them to God, he had led them away from God. Now, what's interesting to note is that the other fathers of those to whom Hezekiah spoke indulged their king Ahaz. They did not stand up and say, King, lead us to God. Don't lead us away from God. Don't lead us to worship foreign gods. Now, a question that we who are fathers need to ask ourselves this morning. It's a very relevant question. Are we fathers leading our children to God by the way in which we live, by the things which we teach them? Or are we leading our children away from God? Will there come a day in the future when some Hezekiah will stand up in the next generation and say about our generation, those of us who are fathers today and have children who are still at home, will there be some young Hezekiah who will stand up and say, our fathers were unfaithful. We need to return to the Lord. May I charge all of you fathers today, don't let that happen. What we need to do as men who know God through Jesus Christ, we need to stand up and we need to call, first of all, one another back to God if we have fallen away from the Lord and we need to move forward in our relationship to the Lord and give a good example to our children. What these fathers had done, we are told in chapter 29, verse 6, they had turned their backs on God. Now remembering what the New Testament counterpart 
of the Old Testament temple is and really where God dwells, it's the church. So when we turn our backs on the true church of Jesus Christ, in a sense, we turn our backs on God. Now, your presence this morning indicates you have opted not to do that. And for that, you and I both can be grateful that we are still seeking God. And we see that God does indeed dwell in his church, that what Jesus says is true. Wherever two or three have gathered together in my name, there I am in their midst. But notice how these people had turned their backs on God. They had quit burning incense. And in the Old Testament, the burning of incense is a picture of prayer. As I mentioned in my article in the most recent edition of our church newsletter, I was convicted last weekend when Dr. Blackaby came here and spoke to the Christian church at large here in the city about how we as a church have not devoted adequate commitment to prayer. Individually, perhaps, yes, but collectively, we have not. And I encourage you to come on Wednesdays when we gather for prayer at 5.30. If there's, that's not a good time for you to come and you want to be involved in the prayer ministry, come and talk to me. We will find another time when we can gather, whether it's early in the morning or late at night. But it's imperative that we be people who offer incense, as it were, to God by praying. God delights in the prayers of his people. It's clear throughout the scriptures. They had also quit making burnt offerings. And in the Old Testament system, the burnt offering was equal to dedication of life. In Romans chapter 12, the Bible says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. We need to evaluate our lives individually and as a church. Do we have, as it were, a dedication of life? like God would have us to do, where we recognize all of our lives are to com be committed to the Lord, not just to compartmentalize our Christianity one day a week. But we also see in this passage of Scripture that they had, in verse 7, put out the lamps. The lampstand in the temple was representative of the Holy Spirit. They had quenched the Spirit of God because they had refused to listen to God. Is it possible that we have quenched the Spirit? Have you quenched the Spirit in your life? Just as golden lampstand in the Old Testament system was the sole means of light in the temple, so the church is the medium of light to the world. Jesus says, you are the light of the world. And to the extent that we quench the Spirit of God as the church of Jesus Christ, we will not have the impact upon the world in witness that God would have us to have. When the church turns its back on God, there's a lack of prayer and lack of witness that's effective and an air of self-indulgence. Now, what resulted from the unfaithfulness of the fathers of Hezekiah and his contemporaries? Well, let's look at verse 8. Therefore, the wrath of the Lord was against Judah and Jerusalem, and he has made them an object of terror, of horror, and of hissing, as you see with your own eyes. For behold, our fathers have fallen by the sword, and our sons and our daughters and our wives are in captivity for this. Judah had become the object of God's anger. Imagine that. Judah had become the object of the discipline of God. Now understand that as a Christian, or as the church of Jesus Christ, and I'm speaking of the true church of Jesus now, we will never experience the wrath of God in the sense of being condemned for our sins because the Bible says there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But make no mistake about it. 
Our God is not a saccharine, sweet God. The Bible says, in fact, Jesus himself says in the book of Revelation, Behold, those whom I love I reprove and discipline. It's the very nature of God not to be able to stand sin in his people. So God responds strongly. In this case, he had sent the enemies of Judah and Israel upon them. The Arameans had defeated them, we are told, in the 28th chapter of Second Chronicles, in the 5th verse. And the Israelites, their own blood brothers, had fought them, and 120,000 Judeans had died at the hands of their brothers, the Israelites. They had fallen by their swords. Their children and their wives were captured and deported by the Arameans and the Edomites, according to chapter 28, verses 5 and 17. Men, let me ask you this question. Is it possible that your wife or my wife, that your children or my children have been taken captive by the enemy because we have turned our backs on the Lord? Certainly this is a message that's aimed, at least from this person's perspective, at men. It's relevant to all people, but especially to us who are given the responsibility of leading our families as fathers. Well, why was there this contamination? Let's look at verses 10 and 11. Now it is in my heart to make a covenant with the Lord God of Israel that his burning anger may turn away from us. My sons, do not be negligent now, implying that there had been negligence before. Do not be negligent now, for the Lord has chosen you to stand before him, to minister to him, and to be his ministers and burn incense. So, who had been negligent? The fathers had been negligent. There had been neglect. That's why contamination had seeped into the people of God. And if there's contamination in the church today, it's due to apathy on our part and neglect. The Christian life and the church of Christ needs constant maintenance through the things which they had turned their backs on in the Old Testament system and through the things which we tend to do likewise. Proper maintenance in the sense of letting the Spirit of God have control of our lives on a regular basis, praying regularly to the Spirit and to Jesus and to the Father, asking God to use us to be witnesses in the world. We must guard against contamination seeping into the church, and once it's there, we need to go and see what we need to do about removing. And that leads to the second point of today's message. Contamination in the church requires a call to holiness. Consecration of the church results from a call to holiness. Let's look again at verse 5, which is our key verse. Then Hezekiah said to them, Listen to me, O Levites, consecrate yourselves now and consecrate the house of the Lord. We do not use this word consecration that often in our daily conversation. What it literally means is to set something apart for a special use. That's what it literally means. In this case, it's used to describe setting apart for devotion to God. When President Reagan was our president, I'll never forget a news spot I saw about his barber. His barber was named Milton Pitts. And Milton was sanctified for President Reagan's hair. As I remember, Milton 
only cut the president's hair. Now, how frequently, I'm sorry, I do not remember, probably almost daily, but that was his whole job. He was set apart. He was consecrated for that purpose. Do you understand that the term that's often used in the New Testament for you is the term saint? And we tend to think of a saint as someone who's been memorialized in some stained glass window or has been canonized by the Roman Catholic Church. But the truth is, if you are a child of God, you are a saint. This word is used repeatedly in the New Testament to describe a follower of Jesus Christ. What it means is to be set apart. We've been set apart for God's use. The church of Jesus Christ is unique in that it has been set apart for the use of God in the world. The church can do what no other entity in the world can do as it's consecrated to the Lord. Now, where does the consecration or this sanctification or setting apart start? Where did it start in the Old Testament in the time of Hezekiah? Well, it started with the spiritual leaders. Look at verse 4. And he brought in the priests and the Levites... These were spiritual leaders. And you probably are aware of the fact that in the book of 1 Peter, the second chapter, that the Bible says about us as the church that we are a holy nation, a royal priesthood. And that includes not just me. It doesn't include just people who are ordained to the Christian ministry in a formal sense. The truth is all of us who are Christians, if we're saints, we are royal priesthood. And God is speaking to all of us to work in such a way in relationship to him that our lives will be a part of this whole process of the cleansing of the church of Jesus Christ. How does this cleansing occur? How does the consecration occur? What's necessary to eliminate the contamination? Well, let's jump down to verse 15 and read along here. And they assembled their brothers, consecrated themselves. So it's up to you and me, as it were, to evaluate our lives and set ourselves apart. God's already set us apart. We need to do our part by recognizing that and yielding ourselves to the Lord. And the middle of verse 15 goes on to say, And went in to cleanse the house of the Lord according to the commandment of the king by the words of the Lord. Now something would escape our notice that's very important here if we're not careful. Here it is. The beginning point for the consecration of the church of Jesus Christ is hearing the words of the Lord. God's word is used by him, first of all, to reveal himself to us. In the 21st century, the tendency among evangelical Christians who above all Christians should know better because we take the Bible to be our authority in terms of teaching us how we're to live and what we're to believe, we need to understand that in most 21st century evangelical churches, the doctrine and the teaching is man-centered instead of God-centered. We start from man and work our way outward rather than starting with God and working our way outward. Do you understand that God should be the focal point of everything in the life of the church of Jesus Christ? We're not to address felt needs by finding out what people need and then addressing their needs. We need to understand we need to focus upon the person of God. Virtually every problem that has arisen in the history of the church is directly related to a faulty view of who God is. Our God is a God of love, 
But our God is also a holy God. When Isaiah saw God high and lifted up, he heard the seraphim singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. When he saw God and heard the word of the Lord through these seraphs, then what was his response? Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live in the midst of a people of unclean lips. When we see God, then we see ourselves. We hear the words of the Lord from Scripture, whether it's taught to us, whether we read it privately. However we learn it, when we hear the word of the Lord, this is the beginning of our being set apart for maximum usage by the Spirit of God. And we see ourselves. You're familiar with the book of James the first chapter, where the Bible is compared to a mirror. When you and I look into the Word of God, there's a reflection of who we are in a positive and in sometimes a negative sense. When I sit down to read my Bible, and I seek to do this daily, and I open my Bible not to prepare a sermon, not to get ready for a Bible lesson, but just to interact with the Lord, to have intimacy with God, the prayer that I pray is David's prayer where he says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. If there be any hurtful way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. This is where we must begin. We must listen to the Word of God. And in doing that, we will see God have a clearer picture of who He is, and He will use His Word to cleanse us and conform us to the image of His Son. The second step, as we'll read further here, look at verse 16. So the priests went into the inner part of the house of the Lord to cleanse it. And every unclean thing which they found in the temple of the Lord, they brought out to the court of the house of the Lord. Then the Levites received it to carry it out to the Kidron Valley. Now they began the consecration on the first day of the first month, and on the eighth day of the month they entered the porch of the Lord. Then they consecrated the house of the Lord in eight days and finished on the sixteenth day of the first month. Then they went into King Hezekiah and said, We have cleansed the whole house of the Lord, the altar of burnt offering with all of its utensils, and the table of showbread with all of its utensils. Moreover, all the utensils which King Ahaz had discarded during his reign in his unfaithfulness, we have prepared and consecrated. And behold, they are before the altar of the Lord." After hearing the word of the Lord, what did they do? They went into the innermost recesses of the house of the Lord. And remember, the temple is represented by the church of Jesus Christ. And on a personal level, even our own lives, because not only does 1 Corinthians 3.16 say, do y'all not know that you are a temple of God? But 1 Corinthians 6.19 says, what do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? Individually. We individually and collectively make up the dwelling place of God. This is mind-boggling to think that God would seek to live in us. But do you know God is looking for people who are consecrated? He's looking for a church which is holy. And in order for that to occur, we must hear the words of the Lord, and we also, once hearing the word of the Lord, adjust our lives accordingly. We must repent of sin, just like these people repented when they cleaned out the temple. And repentance isn't merely sorrow for past failures and sins. It includes that. But more than that, it is a determination to start now to do God's will as God reveals it to us through his word. It boils down to obedience. It's a replacement of evil with the opposite. 
You may remember when Jesus was teaching about a man who had a demon, and the demon was cast out. And he said, if you cast a demon out of a man, that demon will go out into arid places looking for another domicile, looking for another habitat. But if that demon does not find a habitat, he will not only come back to his original home in the man whom he had been cast out from, but he will also bring other demons with him, and they will occupy the house, and the life of that man will be worse than it was before he had been exercised. Do you understand that repentance is incomplete unless we replace the negative thing which we were doing with God's thing? that he wants to do in us and through us. Do you understand that? So what we must do is we must listen to the word of the Lord. And when he reveals any sin in my life or in the life of the church, we must radically repent of it. And we must replace whatever we've repented of with a positive thing in its place. If we confess our sins, the Bible tells us, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Aren't those wonderful words? The blood of Christ is sufficient for covering any sin that I as an individual Christian or we as the body of Christ commit. There was also a renewal of the covenant with God in verse 10. Let's go back up and look at verse 10. Now it is in my heart to make a covenant with the Lord God of Israel that his burning anger may turn away from us. If you individually or we as a church have gotten out of step with the Lord, what we need to do is just say, Lord, I recognize my sin, and I want to ask you, Lord, to help me get back in step with you. Now, what does consecration result in? Well, it results in worship. Look at verse 27. Then Hezekiah gave the order to offer the burnt offering on the altar. When the burnt offering began, the song to the Lord also began with the trumpets accompanied by the instruments of David, king of Israel. Now let me stop here and note what worship really is. Worship includes singing. This verse of Scripture indicates that, and any student of the Bible knows that singing is an integral part of godly worship. However, the very basic understanding of worship is reflected in this idea of burnt offering, which we've already alluded to this morning. A burnt offering represented dedication of life. And going back to Romans 12.1, which I referred to earlier, we're to present our bodies a living sacrifice. Those words don't go, that's an oxymoron, isn't it? Living and sacrifice. When we think of sacrifice, what do we think of? Do we think of life? We think of death. And Jesus himself said, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily. And the cross was an instrument of death. History records no one who survived the cross. So we're to come to Christ, and we are crucified with Christ, as Paul says. Nevertheless, we live. That's the way we live. We lay our lives before Christ, and we say, Jesus, do with us as you see fit, individually and collectively as a church. That's what real worship is. Worship is not something that we do from 8.15 to 9.30 on Sunday morning. Worship is to be a way of life. And to the extent that we compartmentalize that aspect of our lives, to that same extent, we leave the door open for contamination to come into our individual lives and the life of the church. 
The burnt offering always followed the sin offering. And that has relevance to us. We don't have to be forgiven of our sin in the sense of coming to Jesus and asking him to come into our lives every, every time we sin. He doesn't leave us when we sin. But what we need to do is repeatedly come to him and yield our lives up to him on a regular basis. The Apostle Paul also wrote, I die how frequently? Daily, he said in 1 Corinthians 15. I die daily. And the Lord calls us to a daily dying to ourselves, laying our lives on the altar, as it were, as living sacrifices so that we can be useful to him, set apart for his work. Worship does, however, include singing. You notice in the middle of verse 27, again, when the burnt offering began, the song to the Lord also began with the trumpets. I love instruments. And so did God, evidently, because he instituted the usage of instruments in the Old Testament. With the trumpets accompanied by the instruments of David, king of Israel, while the whole assembly worshipped, the singers also sang, and the trumpets sounded. All this continued until the burnt offering was finished. Now at the com completion of the burnt offering, the king and all who were present with him bowed down and worshipped. What a wonderful scene that must have been. The whole congregation bowed down and worshipped the Lord. It's a natural response when you realize how much God has forgiven you and how indebted you are to God. The only normal response is one of humility before God, worshiping God, praising God. And verse 31 says, Then Hezekiah answered and said, Now that you have consecrated yourselves to the Lord, come near and bring sacrifices and thank offerings to the house of the Lord. And the assembly brought sacrifices and thank offerings, and all those who were willing brought burnt offerings. And the number of the burnt offerings which the assembly brought was 70 bulls, 100 rams, and 200 lambs. All these were for a burnt offering to the Lord. And the consecrated things were 600 bulls and 3,000 sheep. This shows liberal giving on their part, too. And this is another response, by the way, to consecration. People who are really set apart for God know that whatever they have is his. It belongs to him and to him alone. Verse 34, But the priests were too few, so that they were unable to skin all the burnt offerings. Therefore their brothers, the Levites, helped them until the work was completed, until the other priests had consecrated themselves. Now listen to this last line. For the Levites were more conscientious to consecrate themselves than the priests. You know who the Levites were? The Levites comprised one of 12 tribes of Israel. And their responsibility was to oversee the offerings and the sacrifices in the temple. They were to keep the temple up. Now, from among the Levites, priests came. Not all Levites were priests, but all Levites, whether priests or not, were responsible for the upkeep of the temple. Levites were considered sort of like half preachers in that day. They weren't quite to the level. But notice, notice where the conscientiousness was. Was it among the more professional ministers or was it among the more lay-oriented ministers? Well, it was obvious it was from the more lay-oriented people. And many times when revival comes, when holiness comes into the church, it doesn't come primarily through people like me who are preachers, who are paid professionals. It comes from people who are conscientious like you, who are lay people, who want to be right with God, and therefore they consecrate themselves 
as these Levites had consecrated themselves more than the priests. Let's look at the last two verses here. And there was also many burnt, were also rather many burnt offerings with the fat of the peace offerings and with the libations for the burnt offerings. Thus the service of the house of the Lord was established again. Then Hezekiah and all the people rejoiced over what God had prepared for the people because the thing came about suddenly. Now who is it, may I ask you, that really consecrates a person? Who is it who really consecrates God's people? Well, it's God who does that. You may remember the prayer of David recorded in Psalm 51 where he says, Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. And you may remember the words of the prophet Jeremiah recorded in the book of Lamentations, the last couple of lines where he says, Return us to thee, O God, that we may return. Restore us to thyself. Renew our days as of old. God is the one who initiates this process of calling us to holiness. He called Hezekiah to be the king, and then through Hezekiah, he called the people of Judah to consecrate themselves by getting rid of those things which were contaminating the church, as it were, in the Old Testament, the temple of God and the people of God. Did you notice as we read that passage of Scripture how long it took them to accomplish the purpose of removing the contamination, the defilement, the uncleanness from the temple? It took them 16 days. Now, in our instant-oriented culture, what we tend to do is we want to get this process of consecration over real fast. We want to confess our sin and move on with our lives quickly. And I believe it does happen quickly many times. But notice what the last verse of our passage says. Hezekiah and all the people rejoiced over what God had prepared for the people because the thing came about, what's the word? Suddenly. Sixteen days? Suddenly? I don't think so. Not in our day and time. Sixteen minutes is sudden for us. But what we need to understand is we need to take time individually and collectively to get before God and seriously ask God, Lord, evaluate my life. Evaluate our life as a church and see what's there that's displeasing to you. What is there that's unclean? What is there that keeps us from being what you wish for us to be in terms of being salt and light in the world? The Bible also says in the book of Proverbs, the 20th chapter, it says, the hearing ear and the seeing eye, the Lord has made them both. So if we hear and we see the truth of God, God's the one who initiates that. Now, I would like to finish this morning by mentioning a couple of passages of Scripture. One is found in the book of Micah. This is a great passage. It's Micah, the seventh chapter, and the 18th and 19th verses. Who is a God like thee? O God, who pardons iniquity, who passes over the act of rebellion of the remnant of his possession. Isn't that great? Who is a God like that? It goes on to say, he does not retain his anger forever. You know, God did not want to hold on to his anger against Judah, but he let go of it at the appropriate time. Our God is a God, Micah goes on to say, who treads iniquities underfoot 
and he is one who will throws our sins into the depths of the sea. Once we admit our sin and repent of our sin, the Lord forgets it. His plaintive cry, which is recorded in the 81st Psalm, is, oh, that my people will listen, he says. Oh, that my people will listen. I will subdue all of their enemies. All that God is interested in is a group of people who will listen. And inherent in the biblical concept of listening is a willingness to act on what we hear. When God speaks, he wants us to listen, and in listening, he wants us to obey. Would you bow your head, please? Perhaps God has spoken to you today about the need in your life to confess some sin. Maybe it's a secret sin. Nobody knows about it except God and you. It's buried deep in the recesses of your temple, the temple of the Holy Spirit dwelling in you. And the Lord wants you to admit that to him and just bring it out and say, Lord, this is a sin. I know it is, and I've got to let go of it because it's keeping you from using me. It may even be holding the church back, Lord. Please forgive me, Lord. And then be willing to ask the Lord to replace whatever you've repented of with something positive in your life. Would you ask the Lord that right now? And then we who are a part of this church, and all of you are, we need to say, Lord, whatever there is in our church which might be hindering the movement of your spirit, Father, forgive us. Show us, Lord, so we can change. Would you pray that prayer on behalf of the church? Lord, we do ask in Jesus' name that you would show mercy and you would restore us to yourself so that we might be renewed. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.